Today on the show, Fum Wing, an absolute treasure trove of Twain trivia and author of The Adventures of Joe Harper. We do talk lots about writing dialect and the editors who love slash hate it, why three quarters of your way into writing a manuscript is the absolute sweet spot, and how living in Missouri and not Brooklyn is actually a blessing for the working writer. There's the key kids, get out of your big city cultural meccas and get thee to the Midwest. Our most prized nugget to come out of the show. Wing suggests Halden Caulfield should be rewritten as a 2019 incel, and we are here for it. Thank you. Yay. You passed. Yeah, you're welcome. You passed. Good, yeah. Health check passed. I feel, feel healthier. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel better, even better than you did 10 minutes ago? <laughs> That's right, yeah. We're, we've got uh, the Midwest and the East Coast and the South represented here, right? That's true. We do our best. That's true. <laughs> yeah. That's like the urban dictionary glossary for Joe Harper. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> right. The, the 19th century hobo urban dictionary, yeah. I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers. For writers. Today we are welcoming Fam Nguyen to the podcast. He is the author of two collections of short fiction, Memory Sickness and Pages from the Textbook of Alternate History, a work that reads like a metafictional companion to Howard Zinn. His story, The Pendergast Musket, published in the 2012 Kansas City Noir Anthology, grew into The Adventures of Joe Harper, a rollicking and extremely moving addendum to the world we first knew from Mark Twain's The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and which, to be honest, manages to gracefully supersede that beloved classic. In part, that's because Joe Harper pecks so much living in his quest for a quiet death, and Wynne constructs his narrative with truly hilarious wit, wordplay, and insight. But also because of Joe's insider-outsider fluidity. Joe Harper is the person we want to hear from in 2020. Wynne draws from Cervantes and Voltaire, as Twain must have done, but also the literature, culture, and sensibility that has colored the 20th century since Twain's death. And as much as we trust the carefully crafted details from the late 19th century time period, we never feel like we're reading a historical novel. Instead, with its world defined by precariousness, the novel feels fresh and recognizably our world, much as we may wish it didn't. Fom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So what was your introduction to Mark Twain and perhaps specifically The Adventures of Tom Sawyer? And when did you know that you had the novel, The Adventures of Joe Harper, in you trying to get out? Well, I first encountered Twain's work in college, and it didn't stick on my bones the way that it did later on when I moved to Missouri and started teaching American literature. I would teach a survey class every semester and use the Norton Anthology and you know, often use the same text and reading it over and over and over again. I just grew a deeper and deeper affection for uh, specifically the adventures of the Huckleberry Finn. Mm -hmm. And even though the uh, character of Joe Harper has a bigger role in the adventures of Tom Sawyer and the epigraph is from the adventures of Tom Sawyer, I learned a lot about Twain's world from Tom Sawyer. 
it really owes its greatest debt to the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which is mm -hmm. um, uh, a, a peerless novel in, in my estimation. And, um, and I knew that I had uh, the character of Joe Harper and I had a, a novel in the works a little bit later, later on in the process. I had originally intended for it to be actually a short, short story. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing this short, short story in this Pike County dialect uh, because the musicality and the lyricism of the language really stuck with me. And then it became clear uh, over time that Joe Harper was taking over and Joe Harper had more to say and more to do and that his quest would not uh, be an abridged one, wouldn't be contained in a box. It was much more expansive than that. And so it led to uh, the writing of this novel, which came, you know, partially by accident. <laughs> like so many of the best things. Yeah. <laughs> Do you mind reading an excerpt for us? No, I don't mind at all. I'm going to read section close to the beginning of the novel. Joe Harper has embarked upon a quest to become a hermit and find a cave to die in of cold and want and grief, as he specifies in the novel. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and this is him fulfilling that quest. On the way, he encounters a former Chinese railroad worker named Li, and they together go on the Hobo Road. And there are a couple of vocab words that you need to know in order to understand what's going on in this section. Bo is just short for a hobo. Kajing means begging. Yegging means stealing or burgling. And jack rolling is mugging. Okay. So mm -hmm. there's three different ways of getting the money or getting the Procuring. <laughs> yeah. That's like the urban dictionary glossary for Joe Harper. That's right. <laughs> right. The, the 19th century hobo <laughs> urban dictionary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, this is, uh, there was a lot of uh, research into hobo writing um, and oh, rather hobo culture. And one of the things that I discovered is that most of the information available on hobo writing and, and hobo culture is during the depression and, and, you know, around there. So it was quite a bit later than the period that I'm writing about. So there was no hobo writing at this time, but there was certainly was a lingo. So here it is. This is from chapter eight. Sooner or later on the road, you find yourself hungry and mean as a badger. And you must decide awful quick, whether your line is cadging or yegging or jack rolling. The result has not to do with the body's skill but rather it has to do with how his mind is set, his tolerance for violence or risk or pity. For instance, Trombo would have made a legendary jack roller being a boxer and a roughneck and big enough besides, but he fell to cadging for food because he never wanted to lay out a feller unless he deserved it. Most road kids have taken under the wing of, of a profesh, learned to cadge because they get more attention for being innocent youngins, but left to their own devices, many a road kid lands on yegging, though precious few can outpace a ball. For me, though I was born with sympathetic features, long lashes like a girl, and dark eyes of appealing sadness, my pride kept interfering, and I couldn't even approach a mark to start cadging. And since I gave up pirating, the idea of jack-rolling folks for the money seemed too much of the same. So I took to yegging. My first boodle was to lift some new rags, as mine was mighty sour, and between my boots and my trousers there were enough holes to make a cork stopper for a wine jug. Even though he swore he weren't a bloat in the glass profesh the way he let on, I could see plainly that Lee had more experience in the life than I had, so I fell in his wisdom once again. 
How's a bow to find a wardrobe out in the road, I says. Well, some is gooseberries plucked from laundry lines, shirts and undergarments mostly. Some is mission clothes. You can get trousers that away since they'll fit you with a belt. Some is yegged from overland passengers would carry luggage and such. But when it comes to hats and shoes, Joe, you have to scrounge up a half dollar or more. Lee, I was learning, was the sort who liked to give answers, whether he had them or not. There's got to be some way a body can get shoes without buying them. Where'd you get your outfit, for instance, I says. Mine, he says, putting his hand to his chin like he had to think about it. He'd grown a wiry beard in the days since we met up, and I guessed that my mutton chops was pushing out in the middle by now. From a lady friend who had extra rags around. They seem to fit you mighty fine, I says. If I didn't know you already, I thought you'd had it tailored and ran it through the mud. Lee hardly seemed to notice me talking. She was a good woman, he says, and I'm a scoundrel. Lee turned distant and thoughtful, so he was no good for talk. But by and by, I get my answer. Tramp around the train yard in Topeka for one morning, and a body will learn precious quick how a hobo gets a hat. A working feller, his head as bare as a baby's, ran around wildly through the crowd at the station, shouting to the Lord and all his flock that a Stetson was stole from his very crown. Then, down in the jungle, I seen a whole gang of road kids sit around a fire drawing, all of them with hats and none of them that fit. I judged it would have been easy to take and have taken off hat off the road kid that morning, but I reckoned from our run-in with Jersey Joe the week before that even Yeggs ain't supposed to lift from other bows. So I jungled up with the other bows and asked, how's the body going to negotiate some new boots? There's laughter, much as I expected. I shook my head. When a body is broken, ain't had a proper meal for two days, it ain't the time for laughing, I says. Bo, you just described the life of every tramp who slept out of doors, and it's just the time for a laughing. What else are you going to do? <laughs> this bow carried a bindle like he's ready to work at the drop of a coin. But no matter which direction you go in, there weren't any work in the jungle. It come back to me then how different a life it was now with the simple comfort of warm hands and feet that ain't sore and blistery seemed like an impossible dream, half remembered from long ago. Even on the high seas, there's always shelter below deck and a hot meal waiting summers to look forward to. And there was women aplenty, which kept me from going cabin crazy for the red years of my youth, but which always sent me yearning for a dank and lonesome cave. <laughs> then when I come home after more than 10 years of pirate and learned that Mama Sereny was gone from the world, it seemed to be the only thought I could hold in my head. Now I was back in the company of strangers looking on through a side alley as a parade of working men dressed in glad rags walked by with their hats on straight, their boots strapped tight, and their keisters full of business. A thought occurred to me that has occurred to every tramping fool since the invention of poverty and idleness. Where are they all going in such a brain rush? I've begun to see the stiffs the way they must look at the bows. That is, like them stiffs don't hardly matter. Only pretend people bustle around, occupied with their daily business, while real folks put on their boots and go aerobic. <laughs> but here I am, broke, and I've got no boots. <laughs> I was thinking about the moment where Joe Harper says dreams is memories and memories is dreams. My strange mm. tentacular history convinced me that there was as much truth in one as to other. You know, he's he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he yeah. does manage these just nuggets of wisdom that I so loved and I was wondering yeah. Do you write your way towards those or are they kind of place markers that you know you're going to get to when you're writing in such as this rich dialect? Yeah. Um, so uh, I'll say a couple things about that. I mean, one is that I 
you know, I, I wrote this book in kind of a method writing kind of approach, you know, where I took on the character of Joe Harper as much as possible <laughs> and wrote as him, you know, and, and it seems like that might always be the case with a first person story, but, it, but it's not right. It's, mm-hmm. there, there's a way in which when you are very consciously inhabiting somebody who is so unlike yourself and whose very rhythms of speech are very unlike your own, you need to make that extra effort to kind of live as that person and it, it leaks into the day outside of your writing time as well. And how did your kids, your boys. <laughs> right, right. So uh, yeah, I, I didn't go full Joaquin Phoenix or whoever the you know, real method actor is. Christian but Bale. Uh, Christian Bale. Yeah. Christian Bale. Yeah, yeah, that, oh, that's God. the one. You know, I, I did kind of, you know, slip into that kind of Pike County dialect because it was in, on my mind so much, you know. Sure. And so, but it's it's very much like for the duration of the writing of the book. And I, I have to say, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why you're still married. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the other thing I was going to say about that is that, you know, when it comes to Joe Harper, this is a character that obviously was created by Mark Twain. But very little detail is given about him in the two books in which he appears. So um, from the adventures of Tom Sawyer, we know that he's Tom Sawyer's best friend, his first mate in his band of robbers, and his nickname was Joe Harper, Terror of the High Seas, for the purposes of their fantasy games, right? right. We know that they, there's a scene where they torture a tick. The tick goes, you know, they've got a tablet, not a modern day tablet, but, you know, like a chalk tablet. Right. And, um, <laughs> and they draw a line on the tablet and the tick moves from one side and Tom Sawyer will torture him for a while. And the tick moves to the other side and Joe Harper will torture him for a while. And we know that he's got a dubious cure for warts, which is that if you, you have a wart, you cut it open, make it bleed, and then you rub the blood on a bean, you bury the bean. And then uh, <laughs> next day you go and you unearth the bean and by then your wart will be healed. It's that easy. And of course, yeah, of course, <laughs> that, it's just hard to find a buried bean. And so it probably you know, will resolve itself eventually. And, and we know that he has trouble handing, handling his tobacco. He gets sick when they smoke on Jackson Island. And then in Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, we learn that when they raid a Sunday school picnic, Joe Harper comes out of it with a hymn book and a tract. So, but, you know, all Mm -hmm. of that, that, that's really the very spare information that I was working off of. But the moment when Joe Harper really came together for me as a character and inspired me to write about him came in Adventures of Tom Sawyer and it formed the epigraph of the book. And I'd like to read that very short epigraph if I could. Sure. As the two boys walked sorrowing along, they made a new compact to stand by each other and be brothers and never separate till death relieved them of their troubles. Then they began to lay their plans. Joe was for being a hermit and living on crusts in a remote cave and dying some time of cold and want and grief. But after listening to Tom, he conceded that there were some conspicuous advantages about a life of crime, and so he consented to be a pirate. Hmm. Once I read that, it was just inevitable that I was going to write about this character. He had a a kind of woe is me romanticism, which is very different from the attitude of either Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn. Tom Sawyer, who's this born leader, this charismatic figure who everybody loves and everybody follows. And then Huck Finn, who's this very independent, 
but kind of you know ragamuffin of a of a boy is his you know he's neglected but he has this sense of of the world which he very much creates on his own so you know it, joe harper became a very different character who i wanted to see in the midst of that group yeah i never really thought about them triangulated like that but that they are i mean you know joe yeah. harper being the much much you know very right. minor. You gave a really lovely keynote at Houston's Right Fest, and in it, you you talked about the power of listening as an important tool for a writer. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that more about specifically with Joe Harper, how that worked for you writing this book. Yeah, as I mentioned, my original intention was to write a piece of flash fiction, mm-hmm. and if I hadn't listened to the story or to the character, I would have forced my concept into this box that was too tight of a fit. And I'd only ever written short stories before, so I just assumed there was another story on the way. And when I really listened to Joe Harper's plans and designs and realized how much he would have to do to realize his ambitions, that's when I handed the reins over to the character and kind of let him lead the dance. So I, I, you know, that was a very consequential moment in my history of the writer that came out of my sensitivity to the story and the character, my listening to what was going on and remaining open to all possibilities. That's really interesting because Jess and I were talking about this question actually before the show. And it's similar to another question that we've asked before writers of, of whether they're sort of these they envision themselves as writers as the creator or the, you know, the, the director of the story, or if they're Mm -hmm. just a conduit and, and, and we find that writers fall into one or the other of those camps. Right. But to hear that Joe Harper kind of pushed you out of one and into another, that's, uh, that's really cool. Yeah. I think, you know, it's probably the former description of being kind of the, the the director of things and the, the master of puppets is, probably true to a degree, but I, I think it's useful to believe the latter. I think it's useful to believe that you're a conduit for something sort of beyond your understanding because it leads to that flow Mm -hmm. in the process. So it's, yeah, it might be, you know, the the former might be true, but unhelpful and the latter might be (laughs) untrue, but helpful. Uh Uh That's a really great way to delineate. Uh Yeah. Because it's true, because there are those times when the when a writer is saying, well, you know, the character told me to do this. And it's like, well, you are actually the one holding the right. pen, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it was Robert Olin Butler who said, your subconscious is smarter than you are, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it is still you, but it's a you that you have less understanding of yes. and that is open to surprising you. And, you know, it's accessing, again, what Butler called the white hot center of you as a means to storytelling which to me is always more interesting because the surface level of me is not mm. very interesting yeah well that's yeah. the part that like gets on the bus and pays our bills <laughs> yeah. and right yeah. i mean that's not and really the story binges part. netflix shows and... exactly yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i wonder from where did the asian character of Lee? That's an interesting story because Twain actually wrote quite a bit about Chinese laborers in San Francisco when he was working for the San Francisco Call. He cared passionately about the plight of the Chinese laborers who were 
abused by Irish laborers, were attacked and sometimes killed. Sometimes the police would look the other way. Sometimes the police would be involved in those assaults. And he reported on this and his, his boss, George Barnes, at the call said, absolutely not. I'm not publishing this because most of his readers are Irish laborers. And so he had to publish in other venues like Galaxy Magazine. And he, throughout his life, actually wrote on the issue of prejudice and abuse of Chinese laborers. And so my inclusion of Lee as a character in the book emerged very much from Twain's own concerns and his own political and social interests. So that it was important to me in writing this that I, I was honoring, you know, Twain's life and world that he created. And for that reason, I, I felt that Lee's character was very consistent with, with what he already had written and was already concerned about. Is that in Roughing It? Does he put anything about it? He does talk about it in yeah. Roughing It as well. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, so there's a whole chapter in, in Roughing It about the uh, treatment of mm-hmm. the... Chinese laborers in San Francisco. And yeah, many places he's written about that. I wonder what he would write today <laughs> about yeah. 2019 right. America. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely need a Mark Twain, you know, I mean, both for, you know, his reputation as the moralist on the main is somebody who is very mm-hmm. clear sighted about, you know, about what's reasonable and what's unreasonable as well as his humor Right. Yeah. Right. We wanted to ask you this about this sort of thing that's going on now. And I, I suppose it's been going on for a while, but it seems like we've just been bombarded lately on Twitter and even in the last Poets and Writers magazine about this maligning of, of the MFA experience. And and we've spoken to it a few times on the show that a lot of times writers come out with an expensive degree and very little actual information about how to make it as a writer out yeah. there, how to buy groceries when right. the latest essay you spent, you know, 10 hours writing garnered a hundred dollars, you know? Right, right. And so now that we have you on the show, I just wanted to know what, you know, your thoughts on that. And, you know, I should add that you are the chair of literature and writing at Mizzou, but it's not an MFA program. So, I mean, I'm not asking yeah. you to answer for all of the MFAs right, right. in the world, but just your yeah, thoughts well, about a that. Lot of our, a lot of our students are MFAs that are getting their PhDs, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. they, they've realized that they need to go further and get a teaching degree that a, a generalist will understand and not just a specialist. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I have, I have two answers to this question, really. I mean, one is as a writer and the other is as an administrator. And as a writer, I, I approach this question somewhat differently. I mean, I see the university system as a patronage system that is more meritocratic than arts patronage has been throughout its history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, rather than coming from kings and popes and the wealthy, right. it comes from the public and the educational system. Mm-hmm. And when I signed up for a five-year PhD program, I knew that a job was not a certainty. And it wasn't an occupational choice. I just knew that I wanted to spend my life writing no matter how I was going to make that happen. And I was grateful for the funding that I received to pursue something that I loved. So, you know, I I feel very fortunate to have the career that I have, but I, I wouldn't have had any regrets if my career didn't take the direction it has and simply spent five years doing what I loved and getting paid for it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. 
So that's as a writer, that's kind of my response to that. Um, going along with that, of course, is the advice that I give to anybody applying to MFA programs or PhD programs in creative writing, which is that nobody should go into debt in order to uh, get an MFA or a PhD in creative writing. Um, I, I, I think it's unwise to do that. I think if it does become this kind of patronage system by the public and educational system, then that has value. But if instead it's people paying a lot of money to get degrees with uncertain job prospects, then it becomes more of a pyramid scheme. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, and pyramid scheme. So, I mean, there are plenty of programs that are fully funded that you don't need to um, apply to those programs that require you to pay, uh, you know, uh, in order to get an MFA or a PhD. So, you know, my administrative response is that I'm very conscious of the fact that our applicants have expectations for job prospects. My best advice to them is to take teaching seriously, mm -hmm. to be deliberate about their pedagogy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's no longer the case that you can simply be this stellar writer and have great publications and you're valued as a teacher simply because you excel as a writer. Mm -hmm. There are tons of excellent writers. You need to put as much energy and thought into teaching and then you'll find that will be valued as well. And that's something that uh, even at, you know, research institutions, you know, R1 universities, they're looking for people that care about mentoring and care about teaching, not just there in order to be a rock star and, you know, uh, do what they do and then go home and forget about it. Right. Mm -hmm. right. I went to two state research one institutions for my degrees and yeah. I felt that that was the faculty definitely reflected that and I, yeah. you know, didn't have to pay a penny. So right, I just right. paid for being there. And I think teaching was very much encouraged. So I feel like at least on those counts, by your, yeah. by your rubric, yeah, I did yeah. okay. And yeah, no regrets, of course. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, it is, it is a sort of an evergreen question now. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, it, it is true that, you know, the job market landscape is changing. I feel it's worse for other areas of the humanities than it is for creative writing, but it's still bad for creative writing. Mm -hmm. And as, even though there are not many, but more jobs in fiction writing than, say, 19th century Victorian novel, right? There, there are more applicants for those jobs, right. many, many more. So it's competitive, but ideally that competition will also lead to better instruction, better thought put into all levels and all aspects of the job. Could we switch gears a little bit and maybe talk about craft and a little bit more sure. of the publishing side? We Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, we were looking at your two collections and they were one was published by Outpost 19 and the other by Mastodon Publishing, and then Joe Harper. No, sorry. Yeah. No, I got Ale that wrong. Uh, no, uh, Memory Sickness is by Ale Alexia Press. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. No problem. And so we were just curious about your editorial experiences, maybe with Joe Harper and what you look for in an editor. Here are some of the things I look for. First, I look for enthusiasm and understanding of the project at hand. So if they get what I'm trying to do with the book, 
and, and it won't entail compromises in areas where I'm unwilling to compromise, then that means they're going to, they're going to work hard to promote it. Mm-hmm. And second, I'm looking for a backlist that I feel good being a part of other authors that I admire being published by them. So for example, in pages in the textbook of alternate history, which is originally published by Queens Ferry Press, which it went defunct, which is why they now have Mastodon Publishing, which represents it. But there were several authors, Michael Nye and Bayard Godsave, that I really admired their work and wanted to share a publisher with them. For Outpost 19, you know, Micah Perks, Dave Housley, Aaron Gilbreth. Um, and, and then lastly, and most boringly, I'm looking for a contract that has favorable terms. Right? Well, of anyway. course. <laughs> no, of course. And it's not Outpost boring. 19, yeah, no, yeah. But Outpost 19 had, you know, unlike publishers that give you 15% of the sales as your royalty, they had 50%. And that was a pretty substantial wow. difference. So, yeah, I'll say. so that's what I think. Yeah, it's no small thing. I th- it's one of the things we try to do on the show is talk a little more openly about these questions. And just to reemphasize what you said, that you're out there interviewing these presses as much as they are you. Yeah. You know, when you send out work, it's important to know who who's on the other end, who's looking at that work. And is this a place where, you know, you feel good about yeah. being represented? So that's right. That's right. And Outpost 19, the reasons that I gave, the reasons that I agreed to it, but my agent had was representing Joe Harper and sent it to Outpost 19. I also happened to like many of the authors that were on their backlist mm-hmm. and so on. So, you know, the other reasons were, are all in place and the editor was very enthusiastic about the project and so on. But That's um, cool. So you heard from the editor when your agent reached out? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there were a couple offers and this editor seemed to get the project better than, Mm -hmm. um, than the other. And how did you find your agent? I found my agent by just going through the guide to literary agents and editors you know, I got it like Barnes and Nobles or something like that. And, and <laughs> that's then went the classic. Through, that's yeah, the classic and, way to do it. <laughs> yeah, I went through, circled everything that, that said, you know, literary fiction or uh, some, some uh, agents said they were looking for, you know, uh, voice pieces and things that sort of sound mm-hmm. like they, they might mesh with, you know, the project. And I sent it out. And, you know, as with the publishers, I had a couple different, offers from agents and the way that I picked the agent was again the enthusiasm and understanding of the project. And you didn't have an agent for your story collections or you had a different nope. agent? Um, so yeah, the Memory Sickness won a contest, mm-hmm. the Elixir of Fiction Award, and the pages from the textbook of Walton History mm-hmm. was submitted directly to the publisher. I was thinking about again about voice and mm-hmm. the the dialect. What did you call it? Pike Pike? Pike County. County. Yeah. And did you get any pushback about it from, I guess not from this editor, but any right, other right. <laughs> editors or early readers? I, you know, I think the dialect is just one of those things, right? Like you're either on that train or you aren't. <laughs> and so I didn't get as much pushback as I got a certain small percentage of readers who found it to be an insurmountable barrier. And hmm. those readers who kept on with the story tend to be delighted by the rhythms and the idiosyncrasies and the language. And mm. So it's it's been more positive than negative, but the negative is not, it hasn't been in the form of 
pushback is so much as just outright dismissal, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, That's helpful. Like, yeah, I think yeah. it would be hard if, it, if some editor was like, I love this project, but could you please, you know, yeah, yeah. straighten out your diction or whatever? Right, right. Well, there was one editor that said, <laughs> this is wonderful. Why not just get rid of all the references to Mark Twain and to Tom Sawyer? <laughs> what? And... <laughs> And just have it be, you know, this this character who's looking for, you know, a place to die and, uh, and going on the hobo road. And, yeah. Right. <laughs> and, I want to uh, make so, a, yeah. like a kiss reel or something or the like yes. end of season friends blooper reel right. where it's all of the writers we've had on the show who who tell us those stories like we really yeah. like this book but could you make the names less indian sounding when it's right. an indian <laughs> memoir you know like tell us about the bronze drum your next project it's a historical novel uh, it takes place during the bronze age in vietnam specifically this eight-year period between 36 ce and 43 ce Whoa. and so what was going on during this time is that the han chinese had occupied what was then lock viet territory for two generations. And this new prefect had begun to impose his onerous taxes, force the aristocrats to marry, and he outlawed the worship of any gods but Chinese gods, as well as conscripting all the young men of Aulok to fight in distant wars in China. And there was one regional lord named Lord Trung, who spoke up against these new and oppressive laws, and he was rewarded by having his palace sieged and his head taken as a trophy. And as far as the prefect was concerned, it should have ended there. But what he didn't count on was that the Lord had these two daughters, Trung Trak and Trung Yi, who in their grief were inspired to launch a revolution. And they raised an army of 80,000 women to fight off the Han occupation of their homeland and create the first free and independent Vietnam. And they ruled for two years before China sent this massive army led by the famous Chinese general Ma Yuan to quell the rebellion, and he drove them towards the cliff where they threw themselves off to their deaths. And I should say that that's the Vietnamese legendary version of it. The Chinese contemporaneous version has Ma Yuan catching them and beheading them. Slightly I, different. <laughs> yeah, slightly different conclusion. But I yeah. mean, certainly, you know, it was a very brief reign. And so the bronze drum refers to drums that were used in the ceremony, in the music, and in warfare during this time. And when Ma Yuan conquered or reconquered Aulok for China, he gathered up all these bronze drums that were used during the wartime and had them smelted into base metal and then sculpted into these giant pillars. Mm. And the giant pillars were erected at the southernmost point of Chinese control of Aulak. And they, he, he said that, you know, China would rule as long as these bronze pillars stand. Mm. And those bronze pillars, nobody knows what happened to them. They're no longer there. But the bronze drums, many people hid them away. And to this day, archaeologists sometimes discover them buried in places throughout North Vietnam. Oh my God. And so those are sort of a, a testament to the Trung sisters and their brief reign. And of course, you know, an independent Vietnam as a nation would not happen until a thousand years later, but this is the, the kind of precedent for it in the right. story of the sisters. Wow. 
That sounds amazing. How far along are you? So I have, it's out with agents right now. So I, I, I mentioned that I had an agent for Joe Harper and I mentioned how enthusiasm is an important part of, of how I choose an agent and a publisher. The agent was willing to represent the book, but was not as enthusiastic. And so I'm looking for an agent that's much more enthusiastic about the project is going to give it their time. So, so where I'm at is I'm, you know, I'm, I'm done with, you know, I've written several drafts of it. I'm sure it'll go through some changes depending on the agent, depending on the publisher before it sees print, but it's on its way for sure. I can't wait to see it. Is it for, is yeah. it another yeah. first person? It is not first person. No, it's a third person, limited omniscient. It alternates chapters that focus on Trung Trok, the older sister, and Trung Nhi, the younger oh, sister. I love it. Amazing. Yeah. Oh my God, that sounds so good. Also, can it just be set in Thailand? No. <laughs> <laughs> can it be present day in New Orleans? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Okay, so we have one more one more little category to get through. Do you have a few more minutes to do our, our I sure do. opposites here? He's only teaching one yep. class. He's only teaching no, one so, class. So he has all the time. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> what is the most exhilarating part of the novel writing process for you? And what is the point where you'd rather throw the whole thing in the fire bin? The most exhilarating part of the novel writing process is exactly three quarters into writing the manuscript. I like count the page number and I have <laughs> in mind how long it's going to be. And it's really exhilarating to be in that final fourth. It feels like I can really sprint. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's, it, it's really exciting because I can see the end and uh, it's thrilling. Uh, the end is, itself is really difficult sometimes, but uh, approaching the end is very exciting. Yeah. As far as the point where I'd rather throw the whole thing in the fire bin, I'd say the first revision. Time where I have to be brutally honest about my first draft and completely redo all that has taken me years to write. Can you say that one more time Uh, for Jessica? Because she and I fight about this all the time. She loves revision and insists it's actually fun. And I loathe especially the first revision just shoot me right right well i you know there are things that i do like about revision and and i think i I find it easier revising short fiction Mm -hmm. because i can just kind of read it over and over again change little things and very gradually it's a completely different story but with a novel that would you'd waste your whole writing week just reading it over again (laughs) and so you know i have to go in with a strategy and there, there are too many things in that first revision that I have to be thinking about. And I just know how much longer the road there is to getting it to where I need it to be. So it feels like once I get the, the thrill of finishing a first draft, then I find myself at the beginning of the very same path. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. I, I concur. I mean, it is like the butterfly effect when like one small yeah. thing changes and then I know I have to change yeah i'm just gonna slap a joe harper sticker on the top of my draft that says memories is dreams dreams is memories and then just hand it off like that's it (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna say that from now on to you foo when you're like give me that i need that last draft like here it is (laughs) I encourage my students to write little inspirational notes in the first page of their books, usually, you know, things like fail better, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so 
Oh, it's funny because I I was gonna say I know Michael Nye strangely enough yeah. because he plays basketball with this best friend of mine who um, lives in in St. Louis. Yeah, he suffered so many basketball injuries. It's a it's a marvel that he's still playing. <laughs> but um... but she sort of set us up as like running buddies. So yeah, I, it's yeah. been a couple of years. But when I saw him in your acknowledgments, I was like, well, of course. He's great. But, he's a fantastic writer too. Yeah, really nice person. So, what is the best thing besides Michael Nye about writing in Missouri, and what's the worst? So, the best thing about writing in Missouri is that there are fewer distractions. So, I don't suffer from FOMO. Mm-hmm. You know, if I lived <laughs> in Brooklyn or something, I'd be the type of person who'd feel like is missing out on a thousand things. Yeah. But here, you know, I can go to one or two cultural events a month. I feel like I'm actively participating in the arts community, and it's fulfilling and it's not distracting. You know. Mm-hmm. The worst thing about writing in Missouri is just that I'm not close to family. I mean, I have my own family here, but, you know, my brothers and parents and extended family are all on the East Coast. I was born in Massachusetts. I grew up in New Jersey. So although I spent 17 years in the Midwest, I kind of wish Missouri and the East Coast were much closer on the map to each other. Yeah, they are far. Oddly. Yeah, yeah, it's two two full days of driving. Right. And uh, I mean, I could fly, but, you know, a family of five, it becomes tough. Oh, yeah. I feel that way about Houston and Boston as well. Totally. Yeah. Right. It's like you could fit how, how many Vietnams between us? Right. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. yeah. Or Thailand. Whatever. Yeah. Depending, depending, <laughs> I guess, depending on whether you, you <laughs> take it lengthwise or widthwise. Yeah. <laughs> right. Hmm. Okay. Um, in the spirit of your pages from the textbook of alternate history, which we didn't talk a lot mm-hmm. about on the show, but I loved as well. What is your best literary villain? And is there a protagonist you'd love to rewrite as a villain? I'm have to I have to go with Pap. You know, I'm a Twain faithful. Uh, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's kind of easy to forget how brutal he is and how cruel because so much of it is played for laughs. But you know, at one point he has uh, his son locked up in a cabin and he's drunkenly chasing him around with a knife threatening to kill him until he passes that. out. And Hack, Huck has to stay up all night with a gun pointed in, in Pap's direction in case he make sure. wakes up and goes after him again, right? Yeah. And then when he does wake up the next morning, he has to, uh, you know, explain why he's holding a shotgun. <laughs> he says that there were intruders and you know i mean he, this is this is just his life you know this and he, he treats he's telling in this very matter of fact almost humorous way and you're like man this is a tuesday for huck this is no, <laughs> really big totally. right so yeah i think i think pap is is really underestimated as a villain it was really moving uh, how you had the the guy ask joe harper about you know his oh, son yeah. jeb and yeah joe's yeah. like i can't i can't even go there <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. So then as far as a protagonist, I'd like to rewrite as a villain, maybe Holden Caulfield. So, you know. That's perfect. Self-absorbed, narcissistic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, when I was 16 years old, I identify with him so much. But now I can clearly see how insufferable he could be and how self-absorbed. And I can imagine him growing into like an incel or something, you know. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh my god! Totally. What was what's the character That's in so the funny. Brett Easton Ellis book Psycho? What's it called? American Psycho. Oh right, American right, right. Psycho. I can yeah. see him growing up into that. Yeah, yeah, even more so for sure. Yep. Well, Fom, yeah. it was so lovely to have you on the show. Thank you for taking the time. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. 
Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space. Hosted by Kate Martin Williams and Jessica Cole, and produced by me, Fulu. Our trusty and hardworking intern is Natalia Pomeroy. As always, subscribe, rate, and review. I think from time to time the FBI likes to uh, tap my line. You know? <laughs> it's because you keep making you these. Randomly. It's yeah. because you keep making these FBI jokes, I and know, now they're just doing it's it out right. of sheer spite. <laughs> yeah. Sky.